On this week's episode, Lee Griffin becomes distraught again. How much do I need to know? Do I need to be a bi- biologist? Unless, no, but you need to know that you can in, see schools of walleye. Unless you the have a like degree in biology, Lee, you cannot see the perch. Apparently not. I don't know what a fish. I don't know what a fish looks like. Scott Boris remembers getting into an argument with somebody's father. I remember, like, I was in an argument with one of your fathers and like some mechanics, <laughs> and I was like, "Hey, I was like, airplanes are like tractors. If they break down, you leave them in the field. You come back and fix them later." And yours truly has hours from my precious life stolen from me mid-episode. You know how much Holy editing time cow. you just cost, Rob? Dude, how many hours of his life is he never going to get back? Continue, because uh, I'm got i I'm, I'm ready to roll right into it. You guys got to guilt trip me, but I'm, I'm rolling. AIM 3-2-6, Class Echo Airspace. Uh, Part A is definition. Class E airspace is controlled airspace that is designated to serve a variety of terminal or in-route purposes as described in this paragraph. Part B is operating rules and pilot equipment requirements, which for this one is one pilot certification, no specific certification required. This is the first one we covered so far that does not have, um, no, no, no. Class uh, C doesn't have any certification requirements, right? Class D. Class D doesn't. <clears throat> Class, yep. okay, part number two is equipment, which is uh, unless authorized by ATC, an operable radar beacon transponder with automatic altitude reporting capability and operable ADSB out equipment are required and um, above 10,000 feet MSL within the 48 contiguous states and the District of Columbia, excluding the airspace at and below 2,500 feet above the surface. Let's stop there. Um an operable radar beacon transponder with automatic altitude reporting capability and operable ADSB out equipment are required at and above 10,000 feet. So below that, you don't need that new ADSB requirement, right? That's right. That's right. Hmm. And then it's 48 contiguous states. Obviously, Hawaii and always Alaska have exceptions to most of the rules. Um, and the District of Columbia, in this case, excluding the airspace at and below 2,500 feet above the surface. So, why, why do they have 10,000 feet and then they below 10,000 feet and below 2,500 feet? What's what's the difference between that? Is that explainable? Scott, you got anything? Or? Am I confused here? I- I don't know. No, you got you got to rub. No, so, I mean, just think but, about following the terrain. So yeah, the, I mean, yeah, terrain may tr- may penetrate the ten thousand MSL like threshold. Okay, but it may not be that more than two thousand five hundred feet above ground level. That makes sense. Gotcha. You always have to take that two thousand five hundred feet and just hug the contours of the ground, and that will always exempt you from most of the rules. As we read on, when we get into class, uh, finish class E here in class G, you'll see a lot of 2,500 foot. Class E to me, the confusing part about class E is where is it? 
Nobody really knows. You know, it's here. I know. I know it is. Yeah. Okay. okay. Whatever, Lee. I mean, I can, but I can tell you, but go ahead. Continue. Yeah. Nobody really knows where it is exactly. It's here. It's there. It's everywhere. Class E everywhere. You know, is that what you're going with for your, your, uh, yeah, it's pretty much, it's pretty much everywhere. And E and Y anywhere. (laughs) Right. Nice. Anywhere, everywhere. It's, it's all around you, but do you know where it is? No, we're, tr- we're trying is. to we're trying to and explain where it is in this what episode. You, well, right, but it's basically anywhere. That, is, you know, is that your one word yeah, summary I mean, of yeah. class E? Yeah. It's different from that we bleeped out from last episode. I, I think it, I we think can come it, back to that. I think it might be what was my last? What, what I thought? What did I? Uh, I. When this I, was D, yeah, so don't D go there. Don't go there or doable. Don't unless you have unless to. you have to. Class it's e, doable, but don't I go there. I bleeped out you last. To. You called it uh, easy. It is easy. It Ooh, is easy. It is yeah, easy. That's true. It's easy, and actually, it's pretty much the same as G. Just do whatever you would do in G. Just do that with E because it's the same thing. In a lot of cases, yes, but some cases, no, which we'll, I'm sure we'll get into. <laughs> Yeah, but for this purposes, just let's just say it's the okay. Exact so same part two A is ADSB anytime above <laughs> ten thousand MSL, unless thing, but... you're at a high altitude, like the land is is high up, then you have that two thousand five hundred feet buffer above the surface for those mountains that kind of come up up close to ten thousand and go through ten thousand feet mean sea level. Uh, part B is operable ADSB out equipment at and above 3,000 feet MSL over the Gulf of Mexico from the coastline of the United States out to 12 nautical miles. Um, this is basically down here in Florida. And I'm on the East Coast, but the Gulf is on the West Coast. Have you ever had anything to do with this, Lee? Have you ever been at those lower altitudes out over the Gulf, uh-uh. and no, no. But what they're talking about is like what's called the air defense identification zone. The ADIS, yeah, is typically that airspace they had to twelve miles off the coast. So they're saying you still you still need it, even though you're kind of approaching international airspace. You're, uh, they they still want you to have it with within these parameters of the three thousand feet MSL. So in, within twelve miles, based on our extensive show prep research of this of zero <laughs> minutes doing it. Um, good. Just going on. I know about the Gulf below 3000 feet out to 12 nautical miles out. Um, you basically don't have to have the ADSB equipment. Is that for basically fishermen or oil? That's the only reason you're flying out into the Gulf um, below 3,000 feet, typically. Because anything going, like, over the Gulf to, like, get to Central America is going to be higher than 3,000 feet. So right. below 3,000 feet, it's basically, there's some tuna stuff going on, I think. I see on Instagram where they're flying helicopters out there and oil. A lot of fish spotting. Yeah, fish a lot of fish spotting. spotting. Going out to tuna yep. boats with crew. Is that legal out there? With what? Fish spotting? Fish spotting. Yeah. 
I thought fish. I I don't know where it's not illegal or where it's not legal. It's not, oh, it's illegal on Lake Erie. Is it? You can't yeah. fly a plane over Lake Erie and look for fish. Nope. That's re- who we got to look. Okay, this this is show prep that I wish I would have known about. Or so I've been, or so I've been told you can't. Okay, so there's well, there's multiple things I take issue with. The main thing that I'll discuss is. You can't see six inches usually into Lake Erie. So how are you going to fly over mm-hmm. and no, spot offshore fish? Offshore you can. Offshore, offshore you can. Offshore Lake Erie is clear. Uh, I've. I, I, would I would disagree. disagree. I've done a lot of boating and a lot of uh, and a lot of flying no, not, over Lake Erie, not, and you, you can't see anything beyond six oh, inches yeah, of the water. You can. You just don't think you can because the bottom is mud. In sand, so it looks like the water's dirty, but you can see the schools of fish. You've seen schools of fish flying over Lake Erie, Scott. Yes, you can, but not if the not if it's been churned up lately. Okay, so if you let's say you have Scott, a week. okay, I would argue I have done more flying over Lake Erie than you have, Scott. Yeah, but you don't know anything about fish, so <laughs> how much do I need to know? Do I need to be a bi- biologist? Unless- no, but you need to know that you can in, see schools of walleye. Unless from the you air have from Lake a Erie. degree in biology, Lee, you cannot see the perch. Apparently not. I don't know what a fish. I don't know what a fish looks like. You can see schools of walleye from the air in Lake Erie, and you're not allowed to report down to boats where they're at, dude. Really? Yes. I'm trying where? to look it up right now. I'm yeah. trying to look. It up. I don't even know what you would look up to find that. I I used to fly. Again, this is again. Is anybody going to catch you doing it? Again, no, this is but. this is half of our episode is is Lake Erie flying, uh, Lake Erie Islands flying yeah, awareness. Right. So I used to fly to Kelly's in the summer for my job many years ago on a almost daily basis, and I've never seen anything beyond just what the waves were doing on the lake in the. Down here in Florida, flying over stuff, you can see on a lot of days into the water. And especially when you're out over the Bahamas, a lot of times that's you can see hundreds of feet deep if, if the visibility is good. And you can see all kinds of cool stuff from the air down into the water. Lake Erie is – most of my flying has been over Lake Erie versus down here in Florida. And I've never seen into the water while, while boating, let alone flying. I think- I think you're you're not looking at the right time because if if you have a calm week, let's say you have calm winds for a whole week, Lake Erie actually gets pretty clear. It it it's always it's the it's the wind. It's the it's because it's so shallow that if there's any waves and wind that is churned up all the time, you have to wait until there's been a, a decent pause in the in the waves in the wind. I would agree with that. It definitely, um, of course. Who would? Who would now that you with said that? that, in the hundreds and hundreds of times I've flown to Kelly's Island, uh, which we speak about many times in the program here, um, there was one time in the years and years and years I was flying out there regularly that, when it's perfectly calm for weeks at a time straight. Uh, and the visibility gets a little bit clear. There is a wreck 
um, off of the runway at the Kelly's Allen Airport. Yeah, it's off the off that that I have runway. seen one time in the hundreds and hundreds of times, and that re- that wreck is not that deep. Guy that guy that works for us, he takes his jet ski over there. He says he sees it all the time. Well, maybe I, I just, I just find it incredible that there's a law about that on Lake Erie because I can't find anything about it. But I've been told by pilots out here that you're not allowed uh, to do that because that's it. Just seems like such like any given year, 365 days in a year. I bet you there's not more than 10 days in an entire year. 10. Well, even if the water's cloudy, those walleye are so thick in the water that you're still going to see a shadow. You might, you know, you know you're not going to see the actual fish, but you can see the, the shade in the, the tone in the water being different hmm. color. Dude, I just, Very off that topic, just doesn't but... even make your, 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 I just, I don't, I'm just going if, by what I've been told. No, no, no. I'm. I don't care what you've been told. You mean to tell me you're going to fly your airplane, and you're going to say that's a school of fish? I'm going to call it onto a boat. Yeah. Well, in that, you know what? You want to go get a flight review? Tell me you're going to do that and bet me a hundred dollars, and we're going to go fly over the damn lake, and you're going to spot me out schools of fish in the ocean. That is a. Yeah, you're not going to do it. That yeah. is a profession. There are. Sp- not even commercial fishermen. Seen it. There are sport fishermen. They're not even commercial. They're just going out for tournaments and stuff. I know some sport right. fishing teams that they'll hire pilots just to go out and just look right. for stuff during a tournament to try to put them on a fish. Yeah. This is off of the Atlantic here. Um, if the, the some yes. tournament rules, not to get into tournament fishing on the program here, but some tournaments allow you to do that. Some don't. Uh, but yeah, that you can do that in the ocean with semi regularity. But I just I don't see that Lake Erie. But maybe I'm wrong. No, I know pilots. I know people have done it. All right, and I know they've told they've told me about it, and they've said just don't tell anybody because it's not legal. This episode will be released five days from when we're recording it. Now we pre-record the stuff. But if Scott can find me one of those regs. In the next five days, I will put it on the sh- in the show notes at robertberger.com. All right? Well, I don't think it's a reg. I think it's a more of like a, a local law, like a state law. Any, I'm looking anything, at the Ohio Revised anything, Code right now. Any, th- any three of us can find, I will put it in the show notes if we can find it. Even if we find it after the five days, check in like a year from now. If we find anything, we'll, we'll put it in the show notes. <laughs> There is a note, which is a, a bunch of stuff about transponder requirements. We'll skip part three, arrival or through flight entry requirements. There's no specific requirements for class E. Uh, part C is charts, class E airspace below 14,500 feet. MSL is charted on sectional terminal and IFR en route. Low altitude charts. I just want get to get in, in there. there on that one get in there, real quick. Um, so if you're looking at a sectional, so if you bust out your four flight and you have it on VFR, and you're looking at basically a sectional representation, it's not going to show it. Basically, everything in the contiguous United States is Class E. It's assumed that it is Class E from 1,200 feet 
to uh, eighteen thousand okay. feet. If it's if it's or it's assumed at the very least from eighteen for twelve hundred feet AGL to fourteen thousand five hundred MSL, which is basically where, that's where this ties in right here. What's so, below twelve hundred feet then? G. G. Yes. Okay. If it's not noted, if it's not otherwise noted, class E airspace starts at class or at eight at one thousand two hundred feet. Okay. AGL, and above wh- ground level. where does class G begin? Well, it would start at 1,199 feet. No, I mean, where does it begin above ground level? 1,199 feet. Is where class G begins? Correct. Okay. What, what, why does it say, what, why does so it say around in this here. Part C charts class E airspace below um, 14,500 then? So think about Okay, so so okay, class C. So I'm going to reread what you just read. Uh-huh. Charts on class C airspace below one fourteen thousand five hundred feet MSL is charted on sectional terminal and IFR and route low altitude charts. Okay, and that is correct. But if you exceed in the contiguous United States, if you exceed one thousand two hundred feet AGL above ground level, you are in class E airspace. And and so if you look in your chart legends legends on a sectional, it, and it will I mean I, well, I can't I don't have a sectional real handy, but if you look in the legend, it will tell you. And so there are certain um the the, the legend will show you you're looking for on a sectional. If you want to see class E in the United States and the contiguous United States that exists that goes above I'm sorry, class G. So it's would be class E starting above 1,200 feet. Um, I guess am I digging a hole here? I don't think I am. Yeah, class E starts at 1,200 feet AGL, unless otherwise noted. Class G is 1,200 feet or less, right? Yes, which is what I'm saying. Class E is is 1,201 feet or more. No. Uh, Well, I mean, yeah, maybe. Maybe I'm a foot off. Maybe I'm a foot off. Yeah. What's that? Because class G is everything at 1,200 feet or less, right? I, I'm i not sure. I'm just reading class E uh, airspace below 14,500 feet. MSL is charted on sectional terminal and IFR in route low altitude charts. I'm not sure what the, um, I'm not sure what the difference is. Uh, uh, if I remember correctly, class E starts at 1,201 feet. 1,200 feet. So the yeah. way the legend... So I just got grabbed a sectional. took me a second. But I grabbed a uh, Seattle sectional here. Um, class, so... Um, blah, blah, blah. So if you're looking at... Um, and we this won't be, and this is almost a trick on it in uh, a private pilot knowledge test. Okay, it will be in the very, very corner of uh, of the of the um, graphic you're looking at that the question is about. You got to look at all your four corners on on the um, screen, and you'll see a small area where it's shaded blue, and that denotes Class E airspace. Um, that starts at 1,200 feet. So, so I'm going to read it off the sectional chart here, 
And so what this says, so the shaded blue, classy airspace of the floor, 1,200 feet or greater above the surface that abuts class G airspace. So most of the United States, so this would be somewhere in Alaska or some very remote area that I'm not familiar with in, in the contiguous United States, but somewhere in Alaska or Hawaii, but it's a shaded blue. If you're in the contiguous United States, and this happens a lot kind of with us here in the nor- northern Ohio, if you look over Lake Erie or uh, southern Canada, you'll see almost what, what I described to students as like a zipper type um, look. It's a solid blue, but it almost looks like a zipper. So it's stag- It's like a staggered blue line. It's got the little line sticking out the other side. Um, No, that you're thinking, I think he, what you're describing, I'm not sure exactly what you're describing. That That's more like a MOA. Or, uh, I don't know. It'd be tough. We look on your legend on your sectional, but I described it as kind of like a zipper. And that differentiates the difference between an airspace that has a class E starting at 1200 feet AGL or a class E airspace that starts greater than 1200. And what's nice about those zippered areas is that they actually will say, and I, I just pulled up four flight while we're talking. Um, and I don't see a, I don't see one, um, right here. I know they're out there, but inside, so they're very limited areas typically, and it will tell you to what what the floor of that class E airspace is. So if class E airspace has a floor of like, let's say 3,500, that means below it is class G typically. So all of the contiguous United States to sum this kind of up, the floor of class E is typically 1,200 feet. Now, with if you have in in the contiguous United States, and that is kind of uh, dominated by a shaded uh, blue boundary. So, if you're taking this private pilot written, you're looking at the graphic, and it's asking you where you have a pretty much an eighty percent chance. If you were to say the surface area of Class E is 1,200 feet, you have pretty much eighty percent chance of being correct. So, if you just look at your legend on any sectional. Uh, the verbiage here is if it's shaded blue in any of the corners. So if you're looking at a little snippet of a sectional chart, cl- shaded blue, it'll say class E airspace of the floor, 1,200 feet or greater above the surface that abuts class G airspace. That's what you're looking for. Then if you see like a more of a zippered type um, look, a solid blue zippered look, that will say, um, and again, I'm looking at the legend, so I'm reading it verbatim here. It says the zippered, a, a solid blue says differentiates floors of class E airspace greater than 700 feet above the surface. And we'll tie, we'll tie in, um, we'll tie in that, that, that here in a second. But typically, um, you'll look at, uh, class E, uh, if you, if you had your blindfold on, you're just looking and throwing a dart at a map with the blindfold on. You can say Class E, for, for the most part, starts at 1,200 feet above the ground level in that wherever that dart landed if you had a blindfold on. You don't even see where it landed. 1,200 feet would be your answer, and you'd be probably right 60 70% of the time. Yeah. Does that make sense? I could not have explained enough. it like okay. that, but yeah. yeah. Well, that, I mean, that was totally rambling and whatever, and I have luckily I found a sectional here. Oh, you're Lee Griffin. You got sectionals in every corner of your home, I'm sure. Yeah, this is a Seattle sectional. 
You, well, you probably had it in your back pocket. <laughs> See, as any good pilot that should. That makes it even. That makes it even worse. Right, we will go to part D, vertical limitations, except we're designated at a lower altitude. See paragraph 3-2-6-E, which we'll get into quickly here. After this, below four specifics, uh, class E airspace in the United States consists of one, the airspace extending upward from 14,500 feet MSL to but not including 18,000 feet MSL overlying the 48 contiguous states, the District of Columbia and Alaska, including the waters within nautical 12 miles from the coast of the 48 contiguous states in Alaska, excluding what, what was that? Continue, okay. Um, so yeah, they're throwing in, um, this is basically going somewhere to class a airspace again, the Alaska Peninsula west of longitude uh, 160 degree 00, 00 west, which you'd think after doing all these shows about this line that one of us would have looked it up, but that's basically the peninsula that goes off. If you look at Alaska, off of the bottom of it goes out towards Russia uh, at some point, uh, specifically uh, 160 degrees west, it um, it cuts it off there because it gets into Russia uh, and B the airspace below 1,500 feet above the surface of the earth unless specifically designated lower for example in the mountainous terrain higher than 13,000 feet MSL and I, yeah, hey can I, do I have a chance can I clarify something here real quick clarify everything Lee. okay I, and I'm really really I apologize everyone I know I sound like an idiot daily here um or weekly we weekly weekly yeah i'm so sorry um so you have to think that class e and class g they're always trading off who's who's doing what class g being uncontrollable which we will cover in the next couple weeks or so but class e and class g are always trading hands you know class g is uncontrolled class e is uncontrolled and you know, they're always doing this this game below 18,000 feet. And of course, at 18,000 feet, you're vert to class A. But you have class E that can be completely, and I did not, I didn't really articulate this correctly in like the last little bit that I was talking. But class E can be starting at any altitude. So controlled airspace can start at kind of any altitude up to, up to 14,500. I didn't really articulate Scott. I mean, I think Scott was maybe trying to point to the fact that I was omitting that or missing that or describing it wrong. I don't know. What, uh, what did I say? Well, okay. Well, okay. Yeah, I guess I'll just continue. Anyways, um, Scott just woke up. Anyways, <laughs> <laughs> Scott took a little nap. Yeah. There. <laughs> yeah. Well, well, yeah, whatever. No, you're trying to call me on something. Maybe yeah. I was misspeaking. And so I was, whatever. Thank you. So class G. You were probably extend, wrong and I was probably right. I assume. As is true. Really, wow. Yeah. Yeah. So we'll just settle I, it at that, I guess. Sure. sure. So yeah. class G can exist all the way up to 14,500 feet. Typically class E. E does start at 1,200 feet, like I said. Like I said, you throw that dart at the map, you got a blindfold on. What's, go ahead. Go ahead, Scott. 
Can you give an example of where it goes up to that height? Well, that and that is where that zippered, like I keep calling it a zippered, and maybe that's the completely misleading way of talking about it. But if you see the zippered, so it's a staggered. I know what you're talking you do? Yeah, I know what you're talking about now. Okay. Because okay. I looked it up. Oh, but, you looked it up. Okay. But for somebody who's not familiar with the sectional chart, I don't know how else to describe it then. Yeah, no. Now that I now that I see the image of it, I understand what you're saying, but think of a large zipper. It well no, it looks like a like if you think of like a checkerboard, only two lines of the checkerboard. Right. Okay. Yeah, it's very very either you could use the zipper analogy, but think of a very large zipper. Yes. You know, they're not close, not close together. It's yes. very hard yeah. zipper. So, I mean, I would recommend, you know, if you listen to this or if you want to re-listen to this, get out of sectional, get out for flight, look at it, think about a zipper, go to somewhere remote or somewhere along the Canadian, um, the Canadian in the Canadian airspace, and you'll find it pretty easily. So I'm sure, you know, there's like probably like a Minneapolis sectional that would have it. Um I know our Detroit sectional has it. Um, probably the Seattle. Oh, yeah, I didn't even open the Seattle sectional, but I'm sure it has it. If you know, if whatever. So, so we're we're talking about, or you can just look at your legend on any sectional. Find a sectional, look at the legend side, and you'll see over in the airport traffic service and airspace information. Little um, down in the lower left hand side, it's giving you all your airspace boundary markers. And so it's pretty much the last one noted here. Um, and it says it, the zippered thing that I keep calling it, it says it differentiates floors of Class C airspace greater than 700 feet above the surface. So that means it's basically if you have Class E airspace that starts above 700 feet AGL, that's where this is gonna come. This that's where this can come in. I haven't seen it like that because I don't really think that's really pertinent. In that somewhere probably remote that somebody in Alaska would deal with. For us, most of us, we're gonna be looking at classy airspace. Anything that exists above twelve hundred feet HEL is how that's gonna denote it. Yeah, I mean, just take a look at it. I mean, you'll see what we're talking about. If you have any questions, comments, concerns, definitely email us. Um, but class E, class G can't. So that means if it's not a class E, it's class G basically. Right. I mean, would you guys kind of, as far as this type of airspace, and we're not talking yeah, about the class for the DC most part. Being, yeah. Unless it's got yeah. a big it's airport, not, yeah, it's, it's got a big airport not, with a control con- tower. It's going to be G. Right. If it's, not, if it's not by an airport, it's going to be class E or G. Right. Exactly. So most these likely, E's and G's are the fillers, right? Would you guys say yes, that? Right. They're the fillers. Yeah. And I mean, for all, you know, for basically pilots like me, E and G are the same thing. If you live life VFR, avoiding any circle you see on the sectional chart, it is basically the same thing. It's the same thing. (laughs) Like, okay, Sam, Lee, okay, you're the expert. Sam going out to fly tomorrow. What am I going to do differently? When I'm in class G versus when I'm in class E. You wouldn't do anything different if you are exactly. conser- well thing, if you're conservative. If you're a if you're pushing the boundary con- constantly, and there are guys out there like uh-huh. that. Don't say that. I, don't do I mean that. well, I know you don't, and that's good. That's that is what how all pilots should be. But there are people that push the boundaries and always take, take, take and push the limits and 
hey, there's no police out here, blah, blah, blah. There, We know those people. Yes. All three of us are very familiar with many, yeah. many, many of those people. But um, I would say we're going to get into at the end of this episode is the visibility um, cloud clearance requirements. Those are different. Um, in Scott's case, when he sees any cloud in the entire sky, he doesn't fly. That's not really relevant to Scott. Right. So for Scott, that is a um, not too much of a difference uh, with you. And clouds will kill you. I mean, kill you. And so what has been found in studies is that the the VFR pilot. If they go into a cloud, into instrument meteorological conditions, or IMC, and they just follow kind of their inner ear sensations, like they, hey, you know, I'm going to use all my sensations. I'm, I can tell you which way is up and which way is down. It takes them six seconds on average before they become spatially disoriented. So really? if you are a VFR pilot flying into instrument meteorological conditions and you are just trusting the seat of your pants feelings like you think that you can like we all think that we can and you have not undergone you know any you know significant uh instrument training it's going to take you six seconds or less before you become disoriented before you start to really lose the sensation of which way is up and which way is down and that is why you have to get those those requisite uh, three hours of instrument training on your private pilot check, or, you know, for your private pilot certificate. So that's all it takes is six seconds. Six seconds on average, and and you know what are you know what are these um, when they're testing? What are the confines in you know when you're starting to lose? Well, it? And does the you six know? seconds? Before that three hours of training you get for your private or after? No, no, no. No, it, no that doesn't matter. They're saying you're looking out the window. They're not saying what how the airplane is equipped or what okay. you're, you're not. They're saying you're just going by the seat of your pants. Gotcha. And so, so and, and you know, I, 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 I have heard of people that have taken, you know, strictly basic VFR aircraft and flown them into clouds. And it's a small cloud. Like you can see, like you can see this side, you can see the other side, you can see how high and you know your level and you're just, you know you're gonna be only you, you know you're gonna seconds. get out of it relatively quickly. Yeah. Yeah. And and I've heard of people that have done this. Of course it's totally illegal, but I've heard of people yeah, I was that gonna have say, done this. Very illegal. Yeah, it's very illegal. And and you know, I've heard of people that have done this, um, that have uh, just flown into these such situations. And um yeah, you. I mean, you. I, so I'm told, you know, you lose your orientation very quickly. So I'm pretty confident about 10% of our audience right now is yacht crew that I work with that have no idea about flying. They just listen to it because it's me talking. Shout out to that 10%. VFR is visual flight rules. That's clear day. You're flying around. You're using your eyes out the window to see what orientation your aircraft is in. When we say IFR, which is instrument flight rules, um, which pertains to going into a cloud, which would be considered IMC, which is instrument meteorological conditions, that is the point in which you you look out your windows and you do not see any reference. You just see cloud, basically. 
It's like, um, which is nothing. You, you see nothing. You don't see nothing. You just see moisture everywhere you look out the window. You can't tell which way's up, which way's down by looking out the window. And if you were to fly into that IMC instrument meteorological conditions, um, and just kind of be like, I feel like I'm straight and level. I don't feel like I'm in a turn or a climb or descent or anything. It's six seconds of doing that before you feel like you're straight and level cruising along, but your airplane's actually starting to go someplace else. And by the time you break out of that, that puff cloud that Lee was saying, you are going to be either in a climb or a descent in a turn, you're going to regain your visual reference and you're going to be like, Whoa, that's, not where I was going on. And when it's a little puff cloud in the sky that you get out of after 15 seconds, it's not that big a deal. It's just kind of a demonstration of, oh, you know, that was weird. I thought I was straight and level. And then as soon as I saw everything again, the cloud cleared up from around me. I realized I was not straight and level, even though I felt like I was. Um, when you get into that in more serious situation where you're in that for minutes and not seconds, um, that is that can become a serious situation where you feel like you're straight level, but you're you're slowly crashing into the ground. Um, for lack. Ladies and gentlemen, this is a a quick interlude uh, that was not planned about using checklists. Our very own very own Lee Griffin succumbed to the temptation of just pressing a button without um, without checking the checklist first. You just saw a button on the recording software, says, ooh, that looks cool, I'll press that, and it just it crashed the entire recording, um, missing some of the most brilliant conversation I think the world had ever seen between Scott and I while he was gone. And um, it, it was basically sabotage, I think. So we we cut back in uh, the best we can here to finish up the episode. Uh, but just always remember, people, use your checklist or else you'll, you know, some of your friends who are brilliant, absolute brilliant, having brilliant conversation that we can never get back. You know, the world will never know the brilliant discussion that Scott and I had. Um, you just have to trust us that it did happen, and uh, we'll get right back into it the best we can. Oh, there he is! Good job, Lee. Good job. <laughs> Spot. Oh my God! Shut your mouth. Keep going. You know, you know how much Holy editing time cow. you just cost, Rob. Dude. How many hours of his life is he never going to get back? Continue, because uh, I got I'm 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 ready to roll right into it. You guys got to guilt trip me, but I'm I'm rolling. How many hours of your life? Shut up, Scott. Is dead now, Bob. You you are gonna. Oh, we've got nine clips of this. I'll figure it out in post. It seems like it's recording now, so we're fine. Um, it says recording. Yes. So Lee, you were going to make a brilliant point to. Uh, what I was saying about getting disoriented in clouds. Yeah. So, you know, it takes six seconds. So, you know, what what a kind of um, metrics they're using to define disoriented, I don't know. I don't know that study, 
but I know the average is six seconds it takes. So that's that again is flying into instrument meteorological conditions. So they could have conducted this in a simulator for a lie, which are incredibly lifelike. I mean, people kind of downplay it, but they are basically a perfect representation of the aircraft. And most time when we're in a simulator, it is IMC, instrument meteorological conditions. You're not looking out the window. And when you get into a big enough airplane, the seat of your pants stuff goes out the window anyways. You are basically, you fly the airplane the same way, whether it's IMC or VMC, you're constantly looking inside and your glance is outside. I think the FAA says you want to be 70% outside on a, in a, like a light aircraft. And then the rest of the time inside, you know, just kind of glance your, um, uh, in your, um, your, uh, what do I want to say? Your altimeter and your airspeed indicator, basically yes. maybe your turn coordinator for coordination, something like that. Maybe guys, what do you I, think? I agree with that. 70% outside. Yeah. So, so that, and it pretty much goes inverse when you're talking like a big airplane, you know, you're pretty much 70% inside 30% outside. You're just doing quick looks outside to make sure you're kind of have a good bank angle and well, you know, your bank angle looking inside, but you, you're kind of on a good, you know, the wind's pushing you into final. So kind of little airplane concepts, but you're flying a big airplane, but you're mostly, you, you see your pants stuff goes out the window when you're flying something over probably I don't know, maybe 40,000 pounds, probably. But anyways, why, um, why is that? Just because it doesn't move. As it, well, it's the the controls are hydraulic, and it, you just you don't have any feel anymore. And maybe yeah. at the very very ragged edge, you probably do have some feel. And I mean, I guess you do have some feel. Um, but you know, I've done so much VFR flying and so much you know tailwheel flying that that maybe that gives me a false sense of security. I don't know, but you know, and, and so like in, in a, in a previous job, you know, we, I was based in Washington, DC, DCA airport, and they did visual approaches as much as they could. And you had, you know, the, the prohibited area P 56, which is the, the, the white house uh, right there. So you had to do a lot of special stuff and, and, and it was a very small airport, but they crammed a lot of traffic in there. So you're always doing visual approaches as, often as they possibly possibly could um even when they shouldn't have they were still doing it and and so you had to do a lot of your seat your pants flying you know i was flying an eighty-five thousand pound airplane you know so you do have a certain i guess certain element it's all relative amount of seat your pants flying um but it's definitely not the same as when you're flying a light light aircraft uh not even close even the airplane flying now is twenty-one thousand five hundred pound uh Gross weight, uh, nineteen thousand two hundred pound uh, max landing weight, not even close. You can, f- I don't really see much distinction between the uh, nineteen thousand two hundred pound foot airplane or nineteen thousand nineteen thousand two hundred pound airplane versus a sixteen hundred yeah. pound airplane. Um, as far as seat your pants feel, but what I was getting at is. You are putting you you really inverse it. You know, once you get into a bigger airplane, you're looking out, you're looking inside more than you're looking outside, and, and so you ha- you get a lot of those clues that keep you safe. They may not make it smooth as far as you know turning final and turning right on final. You you might overshoot because you're looking inside so much. You're trying to keep above stall speed, blah blah blah. But um, the FAA wants you in a in a light aircraft. 
Yeah, I think you guys agreed with this. They want you looking outside 70% of the time or more if you can. Because seat of your pants works in a small airplane. Wouldn't you guys agree? Yeah, yeah if you got visual reference to the horizon. Yeah, you could see, you see the ground. Yeah. So in the spatial disorientation conversation, that's what they're talking about. Is you're using you're using like visual cues outside of the airplane to maintain your you know your horizontal you know up and down right and left, and so they're saying like in six seconds you're losing that. And so if you tr- keep trusting in over an extended period of time, and maybe it's twenty seconds uh, or more, thirty seconds. I don't know. I'm 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 shooting from the hip. You get yourself into into what's called an, air, an undesirable aircraft state, which which we kind of refer to from a testing standpoint as unusual attitudes. Do you guys remember being tested on unusual attitudes at all? Yes. No. Scott, you? No. No. Refresh me. Okay. So maybe I will. Yeah, 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 yeah. I, this is important. Yeah, right, right. And maybe you weren't because it's not that big of a deal on private pilots stuff, but. Um, and maybe not that long ago too. That's probably the biggest thing. But what they want is the examiner is going to take the controls from you. So you're going to say, you know, hey, take your feet off the rudder pedals, put your hands on your knees, and put your head down, or whatever. I mean, you can close okay, your eyes. I kind of remember doing that. I remember doing okay. that, and then they'd hand yeah. it back to you and say, okay. you know, fix. It. Yeah, and recover. Yeah. You know, they'll say recover. Yeah. You know, and so if they're if you're in a simulator or you have somebody in the jump seat that's doing this to you, whatever the case may be, th- they're going to have you put your heads down because they can't see like into your eyes whether your eyes are closed or not when they're doing it. So typically, it's feet off the rudders, hands on your knees, and head down. So you can't be looking to see you know any any jump on the situation they're giving to you. <clears throat> so they're going to give you you know a couple different scenarios. They're going to be you know. Attitude high, airspeed decreasing, or attitude low with airspeed increasing. And it's two total well, not totally different, but it's different recovery techniques. And and that is that is something that, that needs to be thought about, you know, and, and is a big deal, like Rob was talking about a second ago. You let this six second thing, which doesn't sound like a big deal if you're gonna pop out of the clouds in a few more seconds. It's not a big deal, but you let the situation develop and develop and develop, and you're going to be in the clouds for a minute. And before you know it, you have the aircraft, you know, nose low airspeed increasing beyond red line, and you've been a VFR pilot, and you're just trusting your seat of your pants. It can get out of control quickly. Yes. I don't know. Is that is that an accurate or or nose high airspeed decreasing? It can be, it can be anything. You don't have visual reference to the horizon you know, you can be, you can feel like you're straight level cruising perfect. If if you don't understand how to read your gauges, which is what an instrument rating really teaches you, they call it like the master's degree of, of flying. I've heard it called. But even a, uh, even a private pilot will know how to read the gauges. To a to point. Yeah. 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 As a private pilot, you know how to do it to a, a survival a, level. Right. As I see it, a private pilot will be able to keep it straight and level. An instrument pilot will be able to get it back to the airport and land. Yeah. And it's, you got to remember, even though you don't have an instrument rating, you went through more than half of an oh, instrument yeah, rating. Yeah. You just never finished yeah. it. So you you have a... No, I was I was ready have, for the check ride. I just didn't Yeah, you it. have much more of an idea in this situation than uh, three hours of instrument training than a lot of private pilots get. Long um, time ago, though, I forgot. Yeah, most not of it, that you could so. do it now, or even I could do it now, and I've no. 
yeah. done a lot of training with it within the last like a year yeah. ago and i still it's been over a year since i've done it and i would still be uncomfortable that's, doing it that's the way to get back into an airport is you know you take your gps yes, whether sure. it's handheld or in your panel and set your your runway heading inbound and then just fly that heading just slowly descend until you see the runway wait wait what it gets you in the airport every time well hey you know what and there's a lot of countries around the world that they do yeah. that in flatland countries um, well he's out here he used to shoot gps approaches way back in the day before even before most people were using GPS. I'll edit out his last name that you just said, but yeah, that yeah, guy was nuts. Yeah, yeah, edit out the, yeah. But <laughs> yeah. He was doing GPS approaches in here when it was, I remember it'd be, it'd be freaking snowing out. You couldn't see anything and he'd be out flying because he just used GPS to get in here. He's dead of natural causes now, right? Yes. Okay. I mean, he broke nearly every bone in his body during airplane crashes throughout his life but he somehow died of old age yeah a pilot that we all know used to fly gps approaches into a grass strip when the visibility was well below vfr conditions and he would just use that he would fly the heading of the runway and he knew when to descend based on his distance from the airport which is not a wise thing to no, do. No, but Liam, Liam, am I right? You can do that if you're, you know, not. It's not recommended, but they do that in some countries. You can that do that. The resources, you, yeah, like, yeah. If you think about, well, if um, you get in a tight position, um, though, let's say you're you're a VFR pilot and you get you're out flying and you didn't you didn't check the weather, you weren't careful, you didn't check the weather, and some some crappy stuff moved in, and you got to make it back into the airport. You can set the runway heading into your GPS. And if you know the right distances to descend into that airport, you could do a, uh, it is definitely not recommended. That would be like an emergency survival situation. No, no, but in an emergency situation you could do. Yeah. Um, I mean, there's a lot of layers of that conversation. So there's a lot of VFR pilots out there. I mean, there's some that are probably ultra conservative and are thinking that will never happen to me. <laughs> and there are some that are like, hey, that's a daily fact well, of life where I'm fine. Yeah, but but it could happen to anybody. Okay, well, yeah, but, but I would argue that, you know, knowing the circumstances that you're probably talking about, there are multi- a multitude of, air- of airports nearby that have very suitable instrument approaches. But if including, you're not instrument rated... Including, this particular gentleman was, but assu- in including... But if you're not instrument rated... If you're not instrument rated, okay, that's why you get your three hours of instrument training. Yes, I will agree with that. Yeah. So you also have to assume they have a certain level of equipment in the aircraft they're flying. What if they don't? Well, then they need to know where the VFR a, is. What if you're in a Piper Cub and all you have is a handheld GPS? Then they would have needed to set in the inbound course of that airport before they even took off. Well, not necessarily if it has that airport in its database. Data. 
Okay. Database. So, you know, I haven't built fictitious approaches in an, a GPS before. I have. Well, well fa- fantastic. I don't have to do that. I don't go to those airports. Well, I'm just saying, if you if you set your location of the... I've set the, go ahead. the go ahead. location of a particular airport in on the middle of the runway, and then I've gone out in... Obviously, VFR conditions. So I'm cheating. I'm looking out. The, I'm looking out the window, but I'm also following the GPS. Yes, and saying like, okay, if I had to, I could follow this heading into the runway, and I would know that if I was at this altitude at this distance, that I was on the correct glide slope. Yeah, and that I could probably get myself down low enough that where I could see a reflector or a light or something to get in. Rob, we're gonna say something right here. I no, it was the, the grass strip Scott and I are associated with the learning of our flying. Um, that particular airport I have done, particularly when I was coming way out from the west, because typically you'd land in northern Ohio. Most of the time you're landing uh, west to east yeah. um, with the prevailing winds. Wind. So yeah. we had, this was back in like 2007-ish. Well, I can't remember. I can't remember. I can't remember if it was the Garmin 396 I, I or think 496, whichever one was the better one. Um, 396. Well, the 496 four. is better, but you had the 396. Yeah. yeah, I believe he's right. I had the 396? That was like the first one that was color. Okay, yep. that sounds right. The 396 so three, was black and white. And the 396 was color. Yeah, I had the Garmin 396. Thanks, Scott. Which we, of course, never mounted in the panel because that's illegal. Um, no. So I was holding it. It wasn't mounted flush, flush into my dash like a beautiful never. touch screen. Uh, wired. <laughs> hardwired power. Anyway, I, feel like, I would... I feel like co- I might need to call the a cops. A couple of times, the, stri- the strip that we would come into, I came back from the West a few times and it was... I would just I was playing around with it because it was a cool gadget to have. I remember um, found a little knot on that flush thing. in your panel, and I would oh. shoot. Uh, I would shoot almost basically approaches oh, yeah, into you the, yeah. the grass strip. That I mean, that didn't even have runway lights, let yeah. alone an uh, instrument approach. And it would it would cut off. It was either a thousand or five hundred yeah. feet. It would stop giving you the details. You could see the runway by the then. Time, you, if you, you would know, set that up, visibility miles and would miles have to be out. extremely low to not be able to see the yeah. runway by the time it would cut you off. It, yeah, it would it would cut off. It could do it, but it would the the computer software would cut it off before it would allow you to shoot an instrument approach, but if you were stabilized and oh, set yeah. up, you could almost Easily. shoot yeah. an instrument approach. Okay. Off of so that thing back I would, in the day. so this is all right. So you think at what altitude would it cut you off? It was either 500 uh, or a thousand. I think it was 500. Think. Okay. But I don't remember. I, it was, it was more. It was, okay. It was, it, this is back in 2008, 2009. 500 feet this. would be reasonable. Cause that's just under two miles on a stabilized approach path. Okay, so I mean, a thousand is over three miles. It would cut you off. So, so five hundred makes better. My point. My point was they Garmin was purposely not was making the software do less than it was capable of doing because it didn't want idiots shooting. It didn't want idiots shooting approaches. But what, what I'm saying was that 
technology back then existed where it was like brain dead easy up until the software just cut you off um, to do it. If you're a smarter individual, you could not even have that technical of equipment, which at that time, back in 2008, 2009, that was like the best you could get handheld GPS wise. Yeah. That certainly wasn't dash mounted. And, um, but you could, even if you didn't have that little purple line making it perfect to come in, you could still be like, I'm X miles out. What altitude should I be? Now I'm X miles out. What, what should my altitude be? And bring it in. Not that that's a good idea. It's a horrible idea, which I thoroughly don't recommend anyone doing, making up their own approaches. There's a lot more than that goes into that, that the crews do when they design these things that most of us who don't do that for a living would never even understand. But I mean, it's, it's possible. And a lot of times it's one of those things where, um, you can do it a lot and have decent results and, and get the mental, you know, in your mind thinking, okay, I can do this. It's not a big deal until you, until some situation pops up that the guys who design instrument approaches professionally for a living factor in that in your mind, you think you just don't realize, you know what I mean? You're like, Oh, that did this and this and this. And it has worked for me dozens of times before doing different approaches. I've made up myself. Um, and then some factor happens that since you're an amateur, you didn't think of, and now you're, you know, not in a good situation to not be glory. Yeah. I mean, it totally, I mean, if you have a thousand foot of a thousand foot ceiling, that is so far different from a 500 foot ceiling where you're talking, you're talking about the parameters. You got to think these parameters start narrowing more and more and more the closer you get to the runway. Yeah. You know, and they factor all that in, you know, it plays out at like, you know, from the end of the runway out two and a half degrees on each side, you know, we're not factoring that in. We're thinking we got a, you know, whatever of a small window that stays linear all the way to the touchdown zone. Well, that's not the way it works. So the further out you go from the runway, the more obstacles start becoming included in their whole obstacle penetration area. And then that, that changes the minimum altitude at that, at that, <clears throat> at that specific point on the approach. And so if you want to do like a nice stabilized approach, like an ILS or an instrument landing system would be, which is a ground-based system, which I know is a little bit apples and oranges to what we're talking about. But they start factoring in more stuff. You know, if you're talking about just a GPS where it's, you know, a linear signal laterally and vertically, so, you know, three degrees to the runway, and, you know, basically a straight line out from, from the runway center line, and you just kind of get on that, stay on that, you're not putting in any protected area. You know, so you're, you know, there's some crosswind. Or, hey, let's say it's super cold outside. So when the airplane is actually lower than you think it is above ground level, you can look at all kinds of approach plates, you know, which are the charts we use when we're doing an instrument approach up, you know, for an airport, maybe up in the Northeast, like in Portland, Maine. Yeah. You could look at an approach plate up there or uh, Burlington or Manchester, New Hampshire. They all have um, uh, a low, uh, low temperature uh, awareness. Um, so if it gets too cold, you have to go to a separate little conversion table. 
and take those additives into account. If it's so cold, you have to compute certain numbers on segments of the approach so that you have protection against obstacles. Exactly. And the as an yeah. the flatlands of northern Ohio are a lot different than like mountainous areas as well. Right. As far as what you, Yeah, what if you're you out on the plains. Yeah, if there's nothing around, you can you can probably nine times out of ten make this happen. But again, if you're thinking, hey, I got caught with my pants down a little bit because I'm out flying my J3 Cub, the weather came down to a thousand feet above ground level, yeah, you're probably going to be okay. Let's be honest. Right. People are doing this all over the world. But if it goes down to 800 feet, the margin of protection is dramatically less. Well, you you know you got to win with say, it a hundred times. What I always say that, that that one time in Ohio is airplanes are a lot like tractors. If they break down, you land, you poke them in the field, and you come back and fix them later. <laughs> you take back off. You know, it's not, it's right? Not a good right because everything's flat around here. At least northern Ohio, it's all flat farm field. Yeah. So if, if your airplanes are very similar to tractors, if they break down, you poke them in the field come back and you fix them later. Right. Isn't that what your grandpa was doing? Right. Yeah. The first plane he bought back in the, the air Marine Clem. Yep. He bought it. Uh, I believe he bought it out of Michigan near Detroit somewhere. And he force landed it seven times before he made it back to Northern Ohio. It's kept overheating or something. I believe. I, I never heard this story. Wait, what? Yeah. He bought his first plane was in the 1930s. He bought, uh, I believe it's, it was in Michigan. I know it was in Michigan. I think it was in the Detroit area. And uh, he flew it back to northern Ohio, central northern Ohio. And uh, he forced landed it seven times on his way home because it kept overheating. He would just land in a field. And uh, once it cooled down, he'd take back off until it overheated again. So... I've heard this quote in Northern Ohio more than just from you. If they're like tractors, you put them into the field and then fix them later. Airplanes versus tractors is your, your grandpa is the one who came up with that saying, or is that, you? No, like I got it from him, but he didn't come up with the saying. Like when I was told the story about his flights back in the day, like that's how I came up with the saying. He didn't say it. I coined the phrase, but I got the idea okay. from the stories that I heard from him. I've I've literally heard airplanes are like tractors. If something goes wrong, you just put them in a field for a little bit. You probably you heard that from me because it. I said that. I've been saying that for years. I I have definitely heard it from you, but I've been I'm saying yeah. it's it's gone beyond you. I've heard that from other people. Yeah, it was coined on. It, yeah, it was coined by Scott. I'm pretty sure I okay. I started that phrase because I remember you did start it at an. I used to work at an airport, and people that worked there did not like that phrase when I came up with it. <laughs> they still don't. <laughs> I hear yeah, that. no, I'm sure. <laughs> I'm sure that they still repeat that phrase, and not in a positive way. I'm sure that they <laughs> they use it in a. They probably use maybe it. that was they probably use it in a very that was negative, a negative way. Context that was a maybe it was a negative context. I've reheard yeah. that. Yeah, it could, it could, it could be. be a possibility because 
I remember like I was in an argument with one of your fathers and like some mechanics. <laughs> and I was like, hey, I was like, airplanes are like tractors. If they break down, you leave them in the field, you come back and fix them later. I'm sure one of our fathers was not happy with that saying. No, no, no. I mean, I guess, but actually, he I'm was with less, you. He was less upset with me than than a particular mechanic was, but he just kind of like shook his head and like walked away and like you know. So I mean, and this is and this is pro- this is more important than I mean, yeah. So there was different sects of individuals flying. They have different mentalities about these sorts of things. There's different groups in the aviation community. Yeah. yeah thank, did, I, did I not enunciate enough? We well, said okay. sects. So, yeah. S-E-C-T-S. I know. Sects. People might think, people people might think might sex and sex. gender. And then oh, yeah. yeah. Gender. There's like, that's, 70, there's like, there's like 600 different genders. Gender 70 and counting. So, it's a bit confusing. So, I... I we boiled it down to, to yeah, different groups. Probably our groups, different sex. <laughs> <laughs> anyway, Lee, continue with your point. So, I mean, it, it, Scott. So back then, I recognized that that was your your <laughs> your stance on the on the uh, the the thing here. But how do you feel about it now? How do I feel how about it? It's changed. Kids, wife and kids. What do you mean? How do I feel about it? Well, like there's plenty of flat land around. Yeah. No, I uh, engine fails. I'm, just park it. Right? I'm a cautious pilot. I'm a very cautious pilot. Okay. So how does that? How tell me? Tell me how that makes you feel so now? So cautious. He doesn't fly if there's one cloud in the sky. I'm so cautious. Yeah, that's that, that's. How, I'm so cautious that I only fly over areas where I can make a forced landing very easily. No, I'm just kidding. Yeah, but but anyway, no, I I get what you're saying, but also I don't worry about an engine failure that much. I only worry about engine failure on takeoff because that's when you're screwed. Yeah, honestly, yes. like engine yeah. failure at at cruising altitude, engine failure in northern Ohio doesn't worry me because there's farm fields everywhere. The chances of me not being able to find a farm field to land in are pretty slim if I have an engine failure. Because I only fly in. I agree with you. So I I, I don't worry about that too much. The only only time an engine failure really bothers me is on takeoff. Because the particular field that I fly out of, if I have an engine failure on takeoff, there's not a whole lot of places to go. Yeah, there's not a ton of options. Yeah. And so, you know, for, for, you know, people just learn to fly. And that is why, you know, yeah, you think, okay, hey, what's the difference between uh, a, a best rate of climb speed of 77 versus 76? Well, I mean, you want every possible yeah, you're, advantage you're when that altitude, fails at 500 feet. Get more altitude is your, your best. Yeah. Best bet is to get more altitude. Right. Because altitude, right? Because altitude, even though you, go ahead. your senses tell you, you know, as a new, if you're a new pilot, which once you've been flying for a while, you you disregard these feelings. But as a new pilot, you feel like the higher you are, the scarier it is. 
But the in reality, I don't think anybody high- ever feels that. I did. The higher you went, the, the scarier it was. Oh yeah, when I was a new pilot, Rob, I never felt that. I don't think any of this has entered my consciousness. <laughs> oh, I did when okay, I when I was a new that. pilot. Anyway, that you know, not a difference between like, like getting up to fifteen hundred feet was essential. Like you feel, I didn't feel comfortable below that, but after that. It was, you know, like I wanted to stay there. Like getting up higher made me feel nervous. You know, like climbing up to like five, six thousand feet made me feel nervous. But you have to realize that it's safer the higher you are. The more altitude you have, the safer. So if you if you're climbing out of a field that has obstacles on one end or another, whatever end you're flying out of, obviously the more altitude you can produce the safer you are one of the sensations one of the sensations i did realize when getting it you don't really get this this is more further in your flying career when you start to go to higher and higher altitudes you get to a certain altitude and for lack of a better way to explain it it feels less and less like you're maneuvering the airplane and once you get to a certain height it feels like you are almost maneuvering the the land I felt like, like you put control inputs to well, to pitch the airplane, and it feels like the ground is pitching more than the airplane because you're so high up. Well, the higher you get, the At less responsive what, the aircraft is, right? Well, I'm not getting into that. I'm just getting into the visual aspect of your sight picture. Like when you're yeah. lower to the ground, you feel like you're banking and stuff. You feel like you're banking. I don't know. I don't know what the altitude was. Um, but at certain point you get high enough, at least at first, not now, but when I first started doing it, it felt less and less like the airplane was banking and more and more like this plane of land behind you was moving. You know, maybe that's just a rambling that no one else experiences, but that's how I felt about it. No, I understand what you're talking about. And that same sensation can be felt for any time you're doing slow flight maneuvering with a student. Yeah, it's all I, uh, relative. It, right? I would I would agree with yeah. Slow. It is. If I had to compare it to something lower altitude, it would be similar to slow flight. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, so if you yeah, can, it feels like you can, So if you can transfer an altitude divided by in uh, a true airspeed, your your ground or a ground speed, that will give the same same sensation that Rob's talking about. So you go up to a, you know like eleven thousand feet at a hundred knot or a hundred knots uh, ground speed or six eighty knots ground speed. That's going to give the the sensation that Rob's talking about. But yeah, I totally, yeah. I totally know what you're talking about. Yeah, I never, I totally I never equated about. airspeed to it. To the less airspeed, ground speed, the less ground, ground speed. speed you have going, it it can give you a similar effect. The slower you are going, yeah. it's it's very odd. So you can you can be you know three or four thousand, maybe five thousand feet, and then and have the same uh, maneuvering. You know, pull the power back, pitch up, all that stuff. Stall warning horns going off. You can move like that. And you can actually get, if it's really windy and you're pointing the right direction, you can actually get the aircraft going backwards, as I'm sure a lot of instructors will point out. Rob, I'm sure you've done that, you know, yourself or with students. Um, And it's a cool demonstration. Um, But what I would add to that is, too, is 
now that you've said that, and I think I'm thinking about it, I have some time in powered parachute and weight shift control. And both of those are, you're typically flying a lot lower to the ground. Um, for one, it's just the type of flying you're doing. And two, it is, um, th- there is a law I'm sure we'll cover at some point where you can actually legally fly those lower than a lot of other aircraft, those, the powered parachute and the weight shift control. Um, but you're going at like 20 to 40 knots, depending on what setup you have with powered parachute or weight shift control, but you're pretty low to the ground, but you do get a lot of that sensation that you're moving the um, earth around you. Yeah. It feels like you're just kind of hanging there in the sky and you put control inputs and you're, I don't know if it's your, I don't know the physiology behind it, but you feel like you're kind of staying in place because you still have the same, maybe it's the same G force in the seat and the same feel, the seat, and the pants, but you, your eyes see everything else you're seeing horizon wise and ground wise moving. So it feels almost like your control inputs are moving the ground more than the actual aircraft, which is obviously is inaccurate. You're moving the aircraft, not the yeah. ground, but it's just the, the way your mind works. So, so yeah, I would, I would say that is, I never realized it until just now, but your airspeed, your ground speed affects that sensation because of, I, I can attest to that because of those two aircraft, the, the powered parachute and the weight shift control being so low and so slow, you, you do get that sensation more than like a, a faster moving airplane. Well, I wonder if more of that might be because of the pendulum effect of those aircraft you're talking about. Uh, the pendulum effect only really happens in the powered parachute, not so much the weight shift control. And I, I felt it in both of those. If that well, makes sense. Maybe I'm using the wrong term, but you're literally maneuvering an airfoil, which is not, it's, it's displaced from where you are sitting. Just like in anything with a traditional airfoil, you're pivoting the control surfaces. So, like if you're seated in the passenger compartment, like so, like let's say you're seated around the exit row on an airliner, the aircraft pretty much pitches around you. Yeah, you know what I mean. You're not, you know, like us way up in the front, you know, hundreds of feet up ahead of you. You know, we're not. We're we're pitching way more than you are. In, in, you know, in different, you know, flight attitudes, you're, you're pitching, you know, you think you're like, if you were to like look straight ahead, you know, your, your eyes might be changing fractions of an inch where I, our eyes may be up front or the flight attendant or jump seat way in the back. We might be pitched feet different. Yeah. It's all, it's all maneuvers around the center of gravity. So I wonder if that isn't, I don't know how the center of gravity is affected with the, um, uh, the powered parachute or the weight shift. You tell me, I'm actually very interested to, to um, well, if you know offhand. The, the weight shift control, the time I have in a weight shift control is all amphibious um, aircraft. Okay. But yeah. That is, that is very similar to a, an airplane. Um, okay. Okay. You get into, you, as if you've never flown anything, you can learn how to fly a weight shift control aircraft a lot faster than we could because it's almost the same as flying a plane. Like you have the bar you're playing with that's out in front of you, like the hang glider type of bar. 
weight shift control is basically hang glider with a with an engine out the back for people who aren't familiar. And you get in that, and the biggest problem for like a fixed wing pilot is the controls are opposite. Like to flare, you push forward, which in an airplane to flare, you pull back on the yoke or the stick. That makes sense. So it's yeah. very you um, got to pitch the forward yeah, edge so it, up. That I've I've heard some instructors I've talked to who who do the the weight shift control, and I've only ever flown amphibious stuff um, with a gentleman. And the the instructor I talked to said that you um, it's going to take you longer as a fixed wing pilot to learn how to fly one of those actually than someone who's starting from no flight experience because you. And then you said, I'm Rob Berger. Go fuck yourself. Yeah. Well, <laughs> they, well, the, it's a, you just cost them a bunch of editing I, time. Gonna, gonna I know. I didn't think about that. Then, yeah. So, <laughs> but anyway, other than that, the weight shift control is similar, but where you, you had mentioned the pendulum effect earlier is in the, is Which in, I may have it's in the powered yeah, parachute. Elaborate. The powered parachute is um, you have tons of pendulum effect, effect that you're playing with because your airfoil relative to your size of aircraft is so far above you versus any other aircraft that you make an adjustment and what's happening to you hanging down on those parachute strings down below and making maneuvers and changes and stuff is like a lot different than your wing up above you if that makes sense like you're you're literally a giant pendulum off of that wing i don't know how far i don't know how long those cords are i I won't even guess but it's yeah it's it's significant you notice it when you're flying uh one of those aircraft yeah that makes sense. That may, I, I guess what I'm getting at, that may help exacerbate. And, you know, when we're talking about the, the weight shift control, it may just be a speed times pendulum times ground speed, uh, some type of equation that can maybe uh, shed some light on the, the sensation that we're talking about. We've all felt it. We don't know exactly what the equation is that makes us yeah. feel that, but there is one. And I think it's, you know, proximity to the ground times ground speed and probably some some element of pendulum that would make us feel just to sum up the feeling i think you know if you'll agree with this is we feel like you feel like you're manipulating the earth to you versus the airplane to the earth yes and when you're looking out the window you're like oh man i'm I'm moving the airplane around me not the airplane around the earth yeah that was and that was my original point yeah yeah. yeah, and 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 I totally agree with you. I've experienced that, and I've never flown any of the weight shift control or the powered parachute. You have your, um, so it, it's good to bring that experience in, and try and correlate that with a low ground speed airplane at a higher altitude, maybe six seven thousand feet, uh, to doing um ground reference maneuvers or you know slow flight. You get those same feelings, and it's very eerie. To a lot of people. Yeah. People that are like afraid of heights. That is very eerie to them. I've, yeah. I, that, that's what I've seen. Yeah, I could see that. Yeah. All right. Um, we're going to cut this off. Uh, one, the last 
half, 30, 40 minutes. Um, I'm not sure if it's actually being recorded by our software we're using. I'm pretty sure it is, but just in case, we're going to cut off here. It's recording. It says it's recording, yeah, but who knows? It's flashing two different number signs to me. Yeah, I've so, seen that. Um, but it was saying that before an hour or two, yeah. though. It was. It's concerning, yeah. and we've we've gone long. Um, and, oh, so we're going to break this off into two episodes. Um, we're going to get into next episode, um, what happens above Class A airspace, which is above flight level uh, 600. Uh, in the reg, and uh, my iPad is completely dead, so I don't even know what that is. I just remembered before the screen went black that that was the next section. Um, if you like this episode, if you like the show, subscribe, uh, rate an Apple Podcast apps five star, write a good review. Um, we will be super appreciative. Uh, email, as always, is our preferred means of communication. My email is F-A-R-A-I-M at robertberger.com. Uh, Burger spelled B-E-R-G-E-R is the German way, not the sandwich way. Lee is F-A-R-A-I-M at leegriffing.com, G-R-I-F-F-I-N-G. And Scott is F-A-R-A-I-M at scottboris.com, B-O-R-E-S. Um, anything prevalent will be in the show notes. I think we said something earlier about if Scott comes up with some reg about finding fish, we will put it in there. If not, we will ridicule him mercilessly, uh, for the reg not being real. Uh, I, I don't know <laughs> if it's an aviation reg. Well, we're going to look at like all, all, state state all, all, all of the laws. Um, so check the show notes for that. Uh, thank you very much for listening. We will get, uh, part two of this uh, out. We won't even skip episode. We'll do this next week. We'll release part two a uh, week after this is released. Um, we won't keep you guys hanging on pins and needles. Um, that is all I have. Uh, thank you very much for listening. We appreciate it. Uh, take care. Thanks, guys. See ya.